Galatians chapter 3. Tonight I preach part one of a two-part series, two-part message, excuse me. I don't know if I've ever just had a two-part series, but a two-part message. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18, we're still going to be covering a great amount of ground this evening, even though it's only going to be half of all that I desire to preach from this. I didn't feel comfortable, however, breaking it up, breaking the passage up. I want to preach the entire passage together, and then uh, next week we'll, we'll spend some time talking about a little bit more about the implications. As we consider the scope of biblical history, we understand that there are certain people who were used by God in a very specific and in a very special way. Men and women down through the ages who have yielded themselves to varying degrees and in varying contexts to the will of God and thus have had the privilege of being used by God in unique ways. One such man is the man Abraham a man we could rightly consider to be the father of our faith. He was not the first believer. He was not a perfect man, but he was a man selected by God for a very particular purpose as the direct result of the faith that he had. Now this evening, we have the privilege of digging a little bit into the life of Abraham and understanding in a more complete way the legacy of his faith and how it touches our faith today. And as we do so, we're going to consider a controversy that is directly related to how we interpret this passage of Scripture. Actually, we're going to really dig into this controversy next week. We're going to allow the, uh, lay the foundation for it as we teach through the passage, and then we're going to talk next week about some of the interpretive controversies within this passage and why we believe what we believe concerning it. In verses 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 3, if you recall, Paul rebukes the believers of the church in Galatia. He calls them fools. He says that they have been bewitched by false teachers. This is what we covered last week into believing a false gospel. And not only had this gospel been preached among them and then they were preaching it to others, and not only did it change the way they thought of even their own salvation, but it changed the way they lived their Christian life. You know, doctrine does that. Doctrine it does not operate outside of the implications. I want to say it this way, although I, I, every time I want to say this, I always feel bad for the kids in this room who have, will have no idea what I'm saying. Doctrine does not exist in a vacuum. Not a vacuum cleaner, okay? A vacuum, a, a place that has no air and therefore it's, it's a sealed environment. The idea being that doctrine touches life. You can't believe a doctrine without it having implications on how you live your life or by that matter reject the doctrine without it having implications. We have doctrinal controversies in the church today and people say, well, why does it really matter? But it does matter because the doctrine that you believe will inherently touch your life. It will affect the way you live. So they were preaching a false gospel. They believed a false gospel, but it also was touching them as believers. And this particular error in question here is Judaistic legalism. These believers, having initiated their relationship with God 
And, of course, the same way any man has initiated their relationship with God by grace through faith and then the indwelling of the Spirit of God, were now trying to perfect themselves, be sanctified through their own efforts. They, having begun in the Spirit, were now attempting to be made perfect by the flesh. They said, okay, God, now that you've saved me, I'm going to work my way into favor with you. I'm going to work my way up. I'm going to, through my own abilities, through my own flesh, through my own capacity, seek to please you. And they were doing this through Judaism, through this legalistic um, method of thinking where we have to get circumcised, we have to obey the law, the law of Moses. And if we don't, then we are outside of God's will. So Paul challenged them on these grounds. He said, have you received the Spirit by the works of the law or by faith? And of course, the answer was faith. Those that minister to them, Paul asked, do they minister by the power of the law or the power of faith? Well, the answer is obviously faith. So if faith is the means of salvation and faith is the means of ministry, what in our Christian lives can possibly be done outside of faith? What in our Christian lives are we truly able to conjure up just through our own capacity? And the answer evidently is nothing. That's the scripture's answer. We know this. We have considered this. But now Paul is going to approach the argument from a little bit of a different direction. And as I mentioned, today is part one of two-part message, which will explore the illustration of the law and grace demonstrated through the life of Abraham. So let's dig right in because there's plenty to talk about this evening. Right as we get started here, let's just lay down why this illustration is so important. Abraham is an important man in the Christian faith by virtue of our understanding of passages such as this. When we understand passages such as this and we understand what Paul teaches in Romans 1-6, through 6, we, we believe and we recognize the importance of the man Abraham to our faith. But, Abraham is immensely more important in the mind of a Jew. Abraham was the very father, not just of their faith, but of their nation their blood nation, their physical lineage. When an Israeli traces his lineage back, do you know how far back he goes? He goes back to Abraham. He doesn't go any farther than that. He just goes back to Abraham. He doesn't worry about Adam. He goes back to Abraham. The rest really doesn't matter. You say, Pastor, really? Well, if you doubt, you can simply turn to Matthew chapter 1. In the Gospel of Matthew is the only gospel written specifically to a Jewish audience. The point of the gospel is to convince Jews that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. Now, there are two genealogies of Christ in the Scriptures. There's the Matthew one and there is the Luke one. The Luke one traces Jesus all the way back to Adam because Luke is attempting to prove that Jesus is the Son of Man, that He is a man, that He is human. Matthew... The purpose of Matthew being to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, Matthew doesn't bother to go all the way back to Abraham. I mean, excuse me, all the way back to Adam. He stops at Abraham. Matthew 1, verses 1 and 2 read this way. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. 
doesn't worry about Adam, doesn't worry about anyone until Abraham. And this is what mattered to a Jew. By virtue of being a physical child of Abraham, Jesus was a child of Israel. By virtue of being a physical child of David, Jesus was of the promised kingly line through which Messiah would come. And this is what mattered to the Jews. So, Abraham is a big deal to the Jews. And verse 1 tells us this. As Paul, remember, we, we, just, we just talked about what has come before. Now Paul is going to give this illustration. He says, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The righteousness of Abraham, Paul contends, came through believing the revealed Word of God. It is interesting that word accounted there in the Greek to take inventory, to reckon. It is in fact an accounting term, but as you look at the various uses of this word, one of the common translations of this word in our New Testament, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, is imputed. The idea of imputation. The idea of reckoning something upon someone. And this is not just some tradition or some conjecture. We read that Abraham's faith was counted to righteousness. In, as a matter of fact, this is nearly a direct quote of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says this, verses 5 and 6 say, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now, this is God speaking to Abraham, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise was this, that Abraham's seed would be more in number than the stars in the heavens. And Abraham, with all of his heart, placed his full faith and trust in this promise, being fully persuaded of it, built his life upon it, and the Bible says that as the Lord saw the faith that Abraham placed in the revealed Word of God, God encountered it to him, imputed upon him righteousness. It is interesting as we come back to our passage in Galatians chapter 3, 6, I mentioned already that this idea, the accounted to him, literally means compute, count, reckon, to tally the cost. The same meaning rests upon the Hebrew equivalent in Genesis 15, and both words follow this singular meaning of imputation. Say, Pastor, what does imputation mean? Imputation carries the idea of charging something or attributing something to someone. It is regularly used as a legal term, or at least it was in one day, imputing charges upon someone for an offense. The idea being that you are placing those charges upon them. You are blaming them for what they have done. You are, are reckoning their wrong against them. But in our case, in a theological sense, Paul uses this Greek word translated impute seven times in the book of Romans, six times in Romans 4 alone, as you can see. Romans 4.6, Romans 4.8, Romans 4.11, Romans 4.22, Romans 4.23, and Romans 4.24. And then once in Romans chapter 5, Romans 5.13. And several of these references to the imputed righteousness that God places upon a man through faith speak directly in regard to Abraham. 
and righteousness. Namely, that God attributes to humans His righteousness, a righteousness which they do not have naturally. It's not a work. Faith is not a work. And yet it is this act of putting our full faith and trust in the finished work of God, which is the basis upon which God imputes upon a man righteousness. That's where I was going with that. So that common thread of imputed righteousness throughout all Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is that righteousness is imputed upon a man who places his faith in God. And it was no different with the man Abraham. Paul says this to the believers in verse 7 as we continue in the text. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. They which are of faith, they which have the same faith as Abraham, they whose faith is sourced in the same faith that Abraham had, they who put their full faith and trust in the revealed Word of God in the same way Abraham put his full faith and trust in the revealed Word of God, they whose faith shares the same character and the same substance as Abraham's faith, to them have been imputed the same righteousness of Abraham, making them thus spiritual children of Abraham. Now, we've mentioned already just how important Abraham is to the Jews. An essential aspect of this importance is that the Jew considered himself to be a child of Abraham physically. However, they also believed that because they were the physical descendants of Abraham, they also obtained by default Abraham's spiritual blessings. They said, because we are children of Abraham in the flesh, and God gave these spiritual blessings to Abraham, they must be mine as well. The idea in the Jewish mind would be akin to you saying, because my parents have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and I am my parents' child, I therefore receive all of the spiritual blessings that were promised to my parents. And we see the disconnect there, right? We often say there are no spiritual grandchildren, that God has no spiritual grandchildren, that His children's children are not His grandchildren by, by default, that you can't get into heaven riding your parents' or your grandparents' coattails, that every man will stand before God and answer for his own faith in Christ. And the idea that the Jews believed that they were right with God simply by virtue of being physical descendants of Abraham, again, is not conjecture. We're not just making this up here. We see this. In Matthew 1, 1 and 2, we saw how important Abraham was to the Jews by tracing the lineage only back to Abraham. A couple of chapters later, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, we see this idea here that the Jews thought they were okay simply because they were children of Abraham. This is John the Baptist. He is baptizing in the wilderness. And the Scriptures tell us, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So it was a common argument of the day among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even during the ministry of John the Baptist, his ministry of repentance, 
that the Pharisees felt as though the kingdom of heaven was theirs by right, that the kingdom of heaven was theirs by default, and for this specific reason, that they were children of Abraham. And to that, John replies that God could take the stones that were lying around in the wilderness and he could raise up children of Abraham. That it's it's nothing special that they have a particular blood lineage as it pertains to the spiritual blessings of God. Now, his preaching had nothing to do with whether or not they were blood-related to Abraham. Their blood relation had nothing to do with their spiritual relationship with God. And this is the same error that had likely continued to be perpetuated among the Judaizers of the day that Paul was writing. Feeling as though the closer they could get to actually becoming a Jew, the closer they were spiritually to God. The closer they could be, even by proxy, of becoming a child of Abraham, physically, the closer they could be to God. On the contrary then, Paul says, they which are the children of Abraham, and this would have shocked any Judaizer, the children of Abraham are not those that are physical descendants of Abraham. The children of Abraham are those who have followed in his legacy of faith, not his bloodline, as it relates to the spiritual. But what Paul reveals in verse 8 is that Abraham's faith was not to be a unique thing. Abraham's faith was a prototype by which all others would live. That by faith, all men, regardless of family heritage, could be divinely blessed. This promise actually um, was initiated in Genesis chapter 12, three chapters prior to that passage we just read where Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Well before the events of Genesis 15, reiterated several times throughout the Scriptures, we see the idea that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. Verse 8 says this, And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the Gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. That's Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. So Paul says that the scriptures foresaw justification of the Gentile world. And notice what Paul says about this message that was given to Abraham. He says that it was the gospel, that the scriptures preached the gospel unto Abraham. Why the gospel? Well, the word gospel means good news. And that which was preached to Abraham was that there was coming a seed and through that seed, the whole world would be blessed. Is that not good news? Was it not, in fact, the very same good news that we cling to today? That by faith, all men can be spiritually blessed. Now, the message today has matured, no doubt, right? There are things we know today that Abraham had no concept of. The object of our faith is now affixed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The object of Abraham's faith could not have been Jesus Christ proper. He did not know who Jesus was. Jesus had not yet lived. He had not yet died. The object of Abraham's faith was the promise of God. That there was coming one. That there was coming a Christ. But 
But boil it down and the message is absolutely no different. That just as Abraham believed God that the seed of Abraham would bless the whole world, just so when we put our faith in the one who is the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, we are, as promised, spiritually blessed. And this is the conclusion stated in verse 9. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. We share the spiritual blessing of Abraham as we share the legacy of faith that Abraham had. We share his faith. We share in the promise of blessing. And the stark contrast to this is found in the concept of the law as presented by Paul in verse 10. Paul says this, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now this is also a quote of the Old Testament. Paul's using a lot of Old Testament here, isn't he? And this should not surprise us. Paul is, is contending with Judaizers. Judaizers who would reject much of New Testament doctrine. Judaizers who are trying to meld New Testament doctrine with Old Testament law. Judaizers who would put a great amount of credence on the Old Testament law. So where is Paul going to contend? He's going to the Old Testament. He's going to Abraham in Genesis. He's going to the law in Deuteronomy and he's proving out of the very law that these people claim you need to obey that it is insufficient and that there needed to be something better. He's invalidating the law through the law. And so Deuteronomy 27.26 reads this, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say, Amen. The concept of justification by the law is this. Those who operate under the law operate under a constant promise of punishment for violation of that law. Now we all know this, right? This is how civilized society works. We operate under a law. And while that doesn't necessarily mean we need to be fearful, if we are not obeying the law, then there is a natural fear, right? When you're driving down the road and you're going 15 miles over the speed limit, there is a natural fear when you see a police car. And that fear is natural because you recognize that you are breaching the law. And when you are breaching the law, there is a natural, implicit understanding that if you get caught, you are in violation of the law and you will suffer the curse of the law. So it is with the law of Moses that any man who does not continue in all of the things which are written in the book of the law rests under the curse of the law. The difference being you will get caught because an omniscient God is the one who's watching you. The police are not omniscient. Children, you know your parents are not omniscient, right? You know that. They, you get away with things because they can't always be there. They don't have eyes in the back of their head. They don't always have the means by which to watch you 24-7. And so there are things as far as the rules of your parents, the rules of the house, the rules of society that you can get away with because eyes can't be everywhere. But the Scriptures say the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil 
and the good. And so this law, this law that says if you breach this law even once, you are accursed, rested upon the people and was promised by an omniscient, all-knowing God. And the problem is heightened, of course, in the context of the law of Moses because this law is so very thorough and the consequences are divine. And with this concept of the law in mind, Paul reminds the readers of that which has been so clearly proven in this epistle already in verse 11. He says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. No man can stand before God through the law. If the law of God was the basis of our justification, no man could be justified because no man can attain unto the law. We just can't do it. And the first time you breach, you're done. There's no justification for you. It's evident that no man can be justified by the law. But Paul again reiterates that the just don't live by the law. The just shall live by faith. And by the way, this is not just a New Testament thing. When Paul says the just shall live by faith, he is still quoting Old Testament passages to prove his point. This particular one comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says this, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Unless one of these false teachers among the Galatians as they're reading this epistle, roll their eyes and say, yeah, yeah, Paul, uh, it's true. Habakkuk says the just shall live by faith, but a man must keep the law by faith. And that's probably what they were, where they would go with that, right? They would take the concept of faith and say, well, yes, of course a man lives by faith. And in faith, a man keeps the law of, God, of Moses. And we've perhaps heard those sorts of arguments before. So lest that be the direction these false teachers go, notice what Paul says in verse 12. He says, And the law is not of faith here. All right? But the man that doeth them shall live in them. In other words, and this is another Old Testament quote here. We're starting to see a trend, right? Leviticus 18.5 says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Paul says that the man that lives by the law is not a man that believes in the law, but the man that does the law. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say that the law of God is something we need to follow and then say, I'm going to follow it by faith and, and, peri- and cherry pick what I will follow and what I won't. Or say, I'm under the law of God and yet I'm not under the curse of the law. And you know, that's what Judaizers do today. If you've ever come across a, a Hebrew roots believer, there are churches and there are groups out there that, that would call themselves Hebrew roots and they believe that we need to follow the law of God. But they are very choosy about which particular laws they choose to follow, aren't they? And not only that, but when they breach the law, they are very careful to express that they don't suffer the penalty of the law. They're still under grace yet the obligation of the law. So they're obligated to follow it, but when they fall short, it's okay because there's grace. You can't say that we're obligated to follow the law if you don't follow through with the curse that that law initiates. Which means if you're not stoning people, 
And if you're not giving, casting people out of churches and societies, and you are not doing the things that are prescribed in the law as the very consequences of breaching the law, then, then it's invalid. Then you're not actually following the law. And this is the hypocrisy that Paul is saying here. You can't have your cake and eat it too. The law of God is not of faith. The man that obeys the law lives in the law. The man that can't obey the law cannot live in the law. He dies in the law. And the fact of the matter is, no man can keep the law, which means the law gives life to no one. And that is the premise that Paul is going for here. The man that lives by the law is not the man that believes the law. He's the man that does the law. The law is an intrinsically works-based system which found rewards and punishments exclusively upon the basis of one's success at keeping the law. No man can keep the law. The law cannot justify anyone. And if you place yourself back under the law, not only are you placing yourself under the law's expectations, but you are intrinsically placing yourself under the law's consequences. Now it's okay though that no man can be justified by the law. Stay with me on this. It's okay that the law doesn't justify because the law has never functioned as the means of justifying men in the eyes of God. We'll prove this more as we get further in the book of Galatians. Abraham lived before the law and yet Abraham was justified. It wasn't by the law. It couldn't have been by the law. Not only did the Scripture say he was justified by faith, but the law didn't exist yet. God had not codified the law, and yet Abraham was justified. Abraham lived pre-law. And as we continue, we will see this argument unfold. If the Scriptures foresaw the justification of the Gentile world and preached that all nations would be blessed in the same manner, the faithful obedience of Abraham uh, wrought that as he obeyed the revealed word of God, it was accounted unto him for righteousness, then why would we think in any context that the law ever spiritually justified anyone? But all of that being said, the law still existed, right? And within the scope of the law, we do understand that it is spiritual. It has a true connection to one's spiritual well-being. So how do we give the law its proper historical and biblical due while understanding the concepts of justification by faith? Well, the answer, again, will be found further in the book of Galatians. Stay with us in this series, and we'll get the answer to these questions. But verse 13 gives us a big clue. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So follow the context with me. All who are under the law are under the curse of the law, demanding that only those who maintain a proper relationship, a proper disposition toward the law are justified. Yet it is established already that no man can maintain a proper relationship with the law. No man is justified by the law because no man can attain unto the standards of the law. But that's okay because there is one who has done this for us one who has attained unto the perfection of the law. He has lived under the standard of the law and he has come out clean. He has lived it 
perfectly. And not only did he live it perfectly, but then he chose to bear the curse of the law, though he did not deserve the curse of the law. And in doing so, he was able to bear it for you and for me. And this person is Jesus Christ. Thus is the nature of our redemption, that Christ, a man who had kept the law at every point, who had never once offended God's standard and thus became the only man in history that could rightly be justified in the eyes of the law before God, was made a curse for us. The curse of the law that he did not deserve, the only man who never deserved it, the curse of the law was placed upon him on your behalf. So that as you put your faith in the finished work of Christ, the righteousness of Christ that was obtained by keeping the law would be imputed to you, would be reckoned to you, so that as Jesus took your curse, you could take Jesus' righteousness. And so in the eyes of God, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you have fulfilled the law. You are justified in the eyes of God unto righteousness. Now Paul quotes an Old Testament passage here as well. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Deuteronomy 21.23 says this, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. The idea of hanging a man on a tree or from a tree was not inherently that they were killed on a tree. We know Jesus Christ died by being hung on a tree. We know that there's the, the idea of hanging someone from a tree branch, right? Hanging them from their neck. And these are ways that a person dies on a tree. But in ancient cultures, within the context, we find more likely the idea that a man is killed in some way. Perhaps he's stoned. Perhaps um, he, is, he, he receives some other form of punishment. But then as a means by which to heighten the shame of his actions. And perhaps in a manner of speaking, warn others against doing the same thing. He would be hung on a tree. He would literally be tacked to a tree. And then as people walked by, they would see the dead body of this man. Perhaps he was hung. Perhaps he was stoned. Perhaps uh, there was some other form of execution. But they would see this man and two, two things would run through their mind. First, wow, I don't want to do what he did. And second, that man is shamed because his dead body was not initially or immediately buried. He was not given the honor of immediate burial. He was tacked to a tree, excessively dishonoring to him, shameful for him. And Deuteronomy 21-23 20, makes it clear that the man who was hung upon a tree following his death was invoked the deepest curse of the law. The very deepest curse that the law provision was invoked when he was tacked to that tree. Cursed is every man that is hung upon a tree. Thus God chose that Christ would be hung upon a tree. 
the most notable disgrace in all of the Mosaic Law. It wasn't just a disgrace from a Roman perspective. When Jesus Christ was placed on that cross, now that was the greatest form of capital punishment in the Roman Empire. It was a disgrace in Rome, but it was a disgrace before the Mosaic Law as well. It was a a cursed thing in the eyes of the law. And Jesus became that curse. He was hung upon that tree so that Christ's atonement would be efficacious even to the very deepest offender of God's law, thus redeeming all men from the curse of the law by being made the very greatest curse for us. To what end? Well, we've mentioned it already. Verse 14 explicitly states it. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The end of Christ being made a curse according to the law is that you and I might receive the blessing of Abraham. The blessing that God promises would touch all nations through him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And when Abraham believed God that this blessing would come upon all men, that faith was imputed to Abraham as righteousness. Now, what Paul means by the promise of the Spirit is somewhat debatable. It could mean the promise which is the Spirit, which makes sense, right? Because we get the indwelling Spirit when we accept the promise of God. It could mean the promise which is sourced in the Spirit, and that would make sense because the Spirit of God is the means by which we find the being born again. It could mean the promise from the Spirit, which makes sense as well. And indeed, the beauty of our redemption is that it's all of the above. The promise is sent out from the Spirit of God. The promise is revealed by the Spirit of God. And the promise is, in fact, the Spirit of God Himself, as He is the earnest of the inheritance that is placed within us. Now, it's almost absolute that Abraham did not know the fullest extent of the promises that God gave on that day. As the Scriptures make it quite clear in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, the prophets of old marveled at what they were seeing and what they were saying and what they were prophesying by the inspiration of God. They sought eagerly to understand the blessings that would befall the generation wherein the Messiah appeared. So what we have as we've walked through this incredible spiritual illustration of Abraham is that Abraham was given a promise. A promise that through him would come a man. And that by that man, all the nations of the earth, Gentile nations, Jewish nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham received this promise by faith and thus was imputed the righteousness which would be purchased by that one who would come and through whom all the nations would be blessed. This stands in contrast to the law, which would come several hundred years later and demand absolute compliance to avoid its curse. The law was, and indeed is, a reflection of the character of God, and yet its standard proved to be absolutely unattainable. No man can be justified by the law, but that's okay, because God has ordained that the just shall live by faith. Now in verse 15, Paul speaks from the perspective of a listening, what he might regularly call uh, just a, 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 the manner of man. He, he, he speaks 
from the perspective of a person who is listening to him. He says, I speak after the manner of men. And Paul comes outside of the divine perspective here in order to reflect the perspective that a man would have on what he's teaching. And in this case, he says this, but I speak, behold, brethren, he says, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. In this case, Paul hearkens to the principle of human covenants. And he says this, though it be but a human covenant, if you make a covenant with someone, if you make a human covenant, a covenant between two temple men, if it is confirmed, no man can do away with it or disregard it, and no man can add unto it. In the example of simply a man's covenant, a covenant between two men, if the covenant is confirmed, there is no adding to it, there is no negating it. It is set in stone, we might say. But then Paul goes on as he's, as he's speaking. He's going to speak out, uh, according to the manner of men in verses 15, 16, and 17. And he goes on in verse 16 and he says this, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. As we follow Paul's argument and consider the divine covenant made to Abraham, Paul highlights that this particular promise that all the world would be blessed through Abraham was not given to every person to come through Abraham's lineage, but rather that the object of God's promise of blessing was toward one man. One man would fulfill God's promise to bless the whole world through Abraham. In other words, it was not the nation of Israel that would bless the whole world. It was one particular seed. The promise was given to Abraham and David. Uh, Paul says the promise was given to Abraham's seed and that seed is who? Christ. That seed is Christ. So the promise is that one man would come and through that man all the world would be spiritually blessed. Now it's important to understand what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying that none uh, of the promises given to Abraham refer to his physical descendants of Israel. Paul is not saying that the people of Israel did not or do not have a unique position before God. Paul is simply stating here that in direct context to this specific promise, that Abraham and his seed would bless the world, God was not speaking of the nation of Israel blessing the world or of the individuals in Israel blessing the world, by implication that the law of God would be the blessing to the world, but rather God was speaking of one who would come out of Abraham's seed, come out of the nation of Israel, and would bless the world in the same way Abraham was blessed, that he believed God and it was accounted unto him, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Say, Pastor, my head is spinning. I know, isn't it great? This is good stuff here. And next week, we're going to flesh this out a little bit more. See, because there's a few controversies here. How much of this can we then say God has... Can we say from this that God has set aside Israel? We're going to find out, no, we can't. Can we say from the fact that Paul says that they who are... That, that those who are children of Abraham are children of Abraham by faith. Does that mean that there is no blessing upon the nation of Israel? We'll find out next week. No, that is not the case. And that is not what Paul is saying here. Okay? 
You'll have to wait until next week to get that part because I just don't have enough time tonight. But we need to know that. That this is not saying here, this is not Paul invalidating the fact that Israel was a special nation to God and indeed is a special nation to God. And we need to mention that because there's a huge movement today to just see Israel as completely rejected by God. And that's not what the Bible teaches. This verse in relation to this passage and the promises of God to Israel is extremely controversial. And next week we'll take the time to understand all of the arguments surrounding this and why we believe what um, we believe as, as far as what we recognize the Bible to mean. But coming back to Paul's line of thinking on this, Paul says that even from a man's perspective, a covenant is binding and unalterable. That's what he's saying here. And this covenant, the covenant that God gave to Abraham, was not just given to Abraham and so only effective until Abraham died. It was given to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. And that seed was Christ, which means that the covenant was still in effect, that it could not be disannulled. And why is that important? Well, the climax of Paul's argument is in verse 17. He says this, And this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed before God in Christ, that would be the Abrahamic covenant of blessing, the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect, regardless of the Jewish understanding of Abraham's righteousness by faith. The Jewish religious system functioned upon the general idea that the law, given 430 years later, somehow overrode, added to, or invalidated the condition of Abraham's righteousness. And Paul says that's silly. It is silly for us to think, even from a human perspective, that a covenant that was given to Abraham that says, by your faith, you will be justified, and by the faith of all who will come after you, they will be blessed. It's silly to think that that covenant could somehow have been overridden by a covenant made 430 years later. That doesn't happen with covenants. You can't say, well, because I made this covenant 430 years later, that disannuls this covenant. If this covenant is made, there's no changing it. There's no disannulling it. There's no adding to it. This covenant, the Mosaic covenant, 430 years later, cannot undo what was done in Abraham. Abraham was dead, but the covenant was yet in effect unto Abraham's seed, who is Christ. And the law had no capacity, nor was it even designed to usurp, to override, invalidate, or recondition the promises that God gave by grace through faith. And in fact, we find this in verse 18. Paul says, For if the inheritance be of the law, that's the inheritance of the kingdom of God, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. If the inheritance of the kingdom of God be of the law, then it isn't a promise, it is a reward for effort, right? Because the law takes effort. The law takes self-righteousness. If the kingdom of God is attained by you or I through our own efforts, then it's not obtained by promise, it's obtained as a reward for our efforts. But the Bible says that, that this blessing comes to us by promise which means the law cannot be the means by which this blessing comes, much less the means by which it is sustained. God didn't give 
this blessing to Abraham as a reward for his effort. He gave it to Abraham as a promise of faith. Now we've spoken of justification, defining it as the free gift of grace whereby God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on behalf of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We have spoken of imputation, the reckoning of Christ's sacrifice to us. I have said it already, next week we'll consider the controversies surrounding this text so that we might say that next week will be part two of this message and focus primarily on how we ought to apply this message to our understanding of doctrine. And this kind of frustrates me because I'm very eager to explain the many misunderstandings that are commonly imposed upon this text. But we simply don't have time this evening and it needs to be covered thoroughly. But as we close today, I would like to leave you with one important thought concerning what we have considered this evening. Something to take and run with this week. And the thought is this. From start to finish, Christian, your relationship with God is about your faith. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is a firm persuasion in the unseen which compels you to frame your actions upon the object of your faith, to base your life upon the object of your faith. We know that faith initiates our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but faith is so much more than that, Christian. Faith is the context within which the believer is intended to live out every day of his life to perform every action within the spectrum of lifestyle choices that compel us in the scope of Christian liberty. What separates wrong from right is not explicitly what we do, but whether or not we can do it genuinely, if it is a genuine act of faith. What pleases God in this life? Is it the standards that we have? Is it the priorities that we keep? Is it the actions we take? Really, explicitly, it's none of these things. What pleases God in this life is if we are doing what we are doing in faith. So much so that Paul could boldly say in the second half of Romans chapter 14, verse 23, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. A couple of verses later in Hebrews chapter 11, Paul would say, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. If you cannot do something in full faith toward God, then it is sin. If you cannot do something in honest and genuine faith toward God so that there is absolutely no contradiction in your heart between the action that you are performing and your sincere understanding of God's will as reflected in the Word of God, then on the authority of God's Word, it is not sinful. If you are acting with absolute intention towards God's will and for God's glory, which means your heart is right with God. Now, as I say this, let me qualify that statement in this way. It is apparent that there are certain actions which no Christian can rightly do in true faith. They are sinful. They cannot be done in faith. Regardless of how a person feels about that particular action, and therefore, whether we admit it or not, it, w- it is sin. A Christian may say that they feel that they can steal while still maintaining their faith, They can steal in all faith toward God, but they can't. It's impossible because the Scriptures say thou shalt not steal. And so if they somehow can do that and not feel as though they're they're breaching faith in 
God, if they feel like they can do that in faith, then they've got a, a callousness to the Word of God. Because it's still sin. Because they are disobeying the Word of God. You can't disobey the Word of God in faith. It doesn't work that way. A Christian may say that they believe with all faith that women can be pastors in a church, but as it directly contradicts the clear statements of the Word of God, it is not faith that compels their peace, it is callousness and rebellion. Okay? So by saying that if you can do it in good faith toward God and toward His Word, it is not sin, this is not a license for you to say, well, I can, I can see how I could do this in faith, so I'm just going to do it. That's not the idea here. The idea is not that we're looking for the means by which we can somehow reconcile sinful actions in our minds so that they're not sin. The idea is that if you have searched the Scriptures and you with a genuine heart of love for God do an action, and it is an action that is genuinely aligned with the precepts and the principles of God's Word as expected by God, in faith, then it is not sinful. If you cannot do an action in full faith toward God, where your conscience does not condemn you, where the Word of God does not um, speak against it, if you can't do that, then it's sinful for you. Even if the Christian next door can. It's sin for you if you can't do it in faith. Because if it's not a faith, it's sin. And why? Because if I do an action and I in my heart believe that it's wrong and I do it anyway, even if according to the Word of God it's not necessarily implicitly wrong, if I do it feeling like it's wrong, then I've just done it being willing to offend God's Word, haven't I? My heart is willing to offend God's Word by doing an action outside of faith. And thus my heart is not right with God even if the action is not implicitly wrong. That is why whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So where does this leave you and I this evening? It leaves us with the responsibility of studying the Word of God, maintaining an intimate relationship with Him, seeking His will above our own in every case, and then doing what we firmly believe God wants us to do in every context. It means we can judge... We, we cannot judge a man's intention solely upon his actions. It means we have the opportunity to grow with God as our faith increases and as we learn more of Him. It means we're free from the guilt and the pressure of conformity, feeling as though we are lesser in the sight of God because we aren't where others are in their Christian life. It means we are constantly compelled by Scripture to examine our motives, to consider our intentions, to align ourselves with Christ. And those who do so will find a freedom and a joy and a peace. And here's the word, a blessing that is 100% reflective of the promise that God made to Abraham on that day so many thousands of years ago. Abraham built his life upon the premise that he was going to hang his existence upon God and His Word. He heard it. He listened to it, he obeyed it, and God counted it unto him for righteousness. And it is our privilege to follow Abraham's spiritual legacy, to follow in his spiritual footsteps, to become the spiritual children 
of Abraham to live our lives on faith, to trust the unseen God, and thus to find, as Abraham did, the eternal spiritual blessings reserved for those who believe. Let's close in prayer.